So this week, the fashion world was shocked at the death of Catherine Noel Brosnahan, also known as Kate Spade. Spade uh, built a, a brand that sold designer purses and accessories. Uh, she had over 140 retail stores in the United States, 175 internationally. In 1999, Spade and her husband sold 56% of that brand to Neiman Marcus for $33.6 million. And then in May of 2017, the fashion company Coach announced plans to buy Kate Spade for $2.4 billion. This week, Kate Spade took her life, 55 years old. Also this week, the Celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain, CNN program Parts Unknown. He would go through and show how culture and food went together. He took his life as well. Now, I I don't even pretend to know all the things going on in Kate Spade or Anthony Bourdain's life. I, I, I just know that when a person gets to that point, there is this storm of despair and emotional exhaustion and depression and a lot of things going on. And anyone here uh, is, is close to that point or at that point, please, please reach out for help. We would love to help you and walk alongside of you. My point in bringing up this tragedy today is the reminder, just the reminder if we need another reminder, that all the stuff in the world cannot satisfy the soul. And my point of the sermon is, even as believers, there's still a part of us that thinks it can. There's still a part of us that thinks if we had just a little bit more, or a little bit of this, or a little bit more of this, then our soul would be satisfied. Today we're going to see what God has to say about resources and the, and the place that they should have in our lives. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs as we continue to work our way through this fascinating Old Testament book. Remember, Proverbs is an inspired textbook for parents and mentors. It's an inspired textbook to show the next generation what it looks like to live for God, to live for Jesus Christ. The Proverbs was in a part of the Old Testament called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. There are five books in that section of the Old Testament. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. That's the wisdom literature. Now, there was other wisdom literature in the ancient world. When Solomon lived, there were other writing wisdom literature. But there was a differentiation between what Solomon wrote and all the wisdom literature of the world. And Solomon tells us that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. He says, for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then he repeats it. In Proverbs 9, 10, 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, we've said, is an awe and respect for God. It is like the awe and respect that we have for a parent. It is not a cowering fear, but it is an inviting awe and reverence that we have for God. And that's where wisdom begins. It always begins with God. Wisdom, we've said, is not just intellectual knowledge. A lot of people have, have street smarts. But wisdom is taking biblical truth and putting it into action. Everyday wisdom for everyday life. If we were to draw a picture of the book of Proverbs, it would look like this. It would start with God. And in uh, the book of Proverbs, God is usually the word Yahweh. And in your Bibles, whatever translation you have, Yahweh is always uh, translated or shown with Lord in all caps. Yahweh is a covenantal God. Yahweh is the word that describes God of relationship, the God who breathed into man the breath of life. And the book of Proverbs addresses two people, addresses this person here. This is the person the proverb says is wicked. This person rejects God, has nothing to do with God, doesn't want any part to do with God, and their actions are foolish. They're described in Proverbs as the fool. They do things that are foolish. It's demonstrated in their life. The other person in the Proverbs is this person here, and this person is called righteous. The things he does, she does, are wise things, and they do wise things because they fear the Lord. They live in awe and respect perfectly. No, but the, the desire of their heart and the habit of their life is to fear and love God. Now, two things here. Righteousness has two meanings. First of all, there is our standing before God. So when you think of the word righteousness in Scripture, it just means to do right things, right? It means position. It means practice. And so the position of the believer is righteous. We have a right standing before God, not on our own, but because of Jesus. The verse you need to mark down there and, and, and have is 2 Corinthians 5.21. That verse tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that verse tells us that we are made righteous. We don't acquire our righteousness. We don't work for our righteousness. We are made righteous by Jesus Christ. So that's our standing. That's all that we're in the family. That never changes. But the second part is our practice. How does, how does this thing work out in real life? How does it work out when we're going through a, a time of despair? How does it work out when we're, when, when we're doing relationship? How does it look out when we're looking for that husband or, or, or wife or dating someone? How does it look, what's it look like when we're married? How do you do marriage? What's it look like in everyday life to do parenting? What's it look like in everyday life to do business? That's what the Proverbs is teaching us, practical stuff. And we saw last time uh, when we were together uh, this aspect of pride and humility. Uh, we're going to look uh, in the coming weeks at honesty. What's, what's, what's honesty have to do with it? How do we live a life of honesty? Purity. Uh, the Proverbs addresses that head on. The importance of good friends and good counsel. The Proverbs says you become like those you hang around. We know that. The Proverbs reminds us of that. Words, reckless words pierce like a sword. We'll have a whole message on just words. Work, the difference between diligence and laziness. And plans, allowing your plans 
to be God's plans, not your plans. Now today, we want to look at what the Proverbs have to say about money and possessions. And I just want to deflate this thing, because I know all of you love sermons on money, right? I'm not going to tell you what to give, how much you should give, where to give. I'm not going to tell you if you should give off the gross or take home. That's between you and the Lord. Let's talk about the issue of the heart. And the reason this is so important is because of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Why, Why is it important for us to deal with this? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where enemies break, uh, thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Then Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I got I to gotta, I gotta admit that when I read that, I... I always think, Jesus, what you should have said was, where your heart is, there your treasure would be, right? Doesn't that flow better? Because our heart is the center of our thinking. And when you're in scripture, the heart, heart's not just the thing that pumps blood through your body. Heart is the center of your thinking. It's the center uh, of your emotions. It's the center of your actions, Right? So it, it seems to me it would, have flown better, it would have flowed better for Jesus to have said, where your heart is, where that control center is, that will direct then your treasures. But Jesus always knows better, doesn't he? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. We are not good evaluators of our heart because we can rationalize anything, right? Jeremiah, the heart is deceptive above all things, desperately wicked, who can figure it out? I can't. I can rationalize just about anything. So Jesus says, let's go right to the evidence. Let's go right to the tangible. Where the evidence is, where your treasure is, where you wake up thinking about, what drives your life, what you dream about, what you can't wait to retire for, what you're working for all your life, those treasures in your life, where you invest your time and energy. You can't argue with those things, can you? That just demonstrates where your heart is. So that's the first question that I've been asking myself this week that I ask you. Where's your heart? Look at the evidence. Don't just say, oh, my heart's with God. God is awesome. We've been singing about that. I love singing that song. He is awesome. Look at the evidence. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, we're going to see today a lot of passages in Proverbs that talk about this practical aspect of our treasure, our wealth, our money, our resources. But the one we have to start with, the passage we have to start with in the Proverbs is, is uh, chapter 3, verse 9. And there, Solomon, who's writing this portion of uh, the Proverbs, says this, honor the Lord with your wealth. Let's just start there with honor the Lord. The word honor is a Hebrew word that means to be heavy. It, means to, it, mean, it signifies something that carries weight, something we greatly value. 
And it means to acknowledge, so when we take it into honoring a person, it means to honor a person and acknowledge their rightful place by giving them gifts of tribute. I want to say that again. Honoring God is giving him gifts of tribute. Honoring a person is giving them gifts of tribute. This word, that's what this word means. So if you were to go visit a royalty, you know, you would go in, you would prepare for it well, right? There would be that awe and respect for royalty just because of the position. You would walk in, but you would also, you wouldn't just walk in and bow before them. You would bring to them a gift of tribute. And that's what this word says. Honor the Lord. Honor him with a gift of tribute. Now, generally, we honor him with our lives. We've done that this morning, right? We've taken, we've taken, uh, we've taken biblical truth and we put it to music. And then those who believe this is a significant part of ministry, significant part of our worship, they've been practicing and preparing prayerfully all week long And then they come and lead us in that, and we have offered God a gift, right, of tribute, our singing, our praise to him, a gift of tribute. So that's just a general thing that we do. Now, the writer here, Solomon, says more specifically, honor God with what? Honor God with your wealth. Wealth there is a word that's all-encompassing. It's not just the money that you have. It's the home that you have. It's the car that you drive. It's a job that you have. It's your children. It's all the gifts that God has given you. And And so Solomon is saying, honor God. Demonstrate that God is worthy in your life, that he carries weight in your life by giving him your wealth. Honoring him with your wealth. Not just parts of it. By the way, Honoring God with wealth is not dropping in a check in a basket when it's passed on a weekend service. If that's all you're doing, you are missing the point. It's everything. It's who we are. It's all the stuff we have. So, how are, so very practical, how are you honoring God with your car? Cars are a pretty significant investment, right? How are you honoring God with your car? How are you honoring God with your home? Home's a pretty significant investment, isn't it? How are you honoring God with your home? How are you honoring God with your job? How are you honoring God with all the stuff that he's given you? And Solomon keeps going. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. With the first fruits, not what's left over. Not what I have when I've done everything else I want to do, right? But the first fruits from the very top, the most important, the best, the best of my life. Honor God, Solomon said, with the best of your life. The word produce here uh, is an interesting word. It, it, means, it means product, like grains that have been raised from the ground, but it also means your income, what you get. See, uh, Solomon's writing this to the Israelites, but not all of them were farmers. Not all of them had grains coming up, the first fruits, so... The words, a general word, everything you have, everything that God gives you, honor him with it. 
honor God with the first fruits of your produce of what he gives you. And again, that's, that's the question for you, not for me. I, I deal with this in my own life. Lori and I have to work on this. But for you is, are you honoring God with the first fruits, with the best of all he's given you? When, when we do that, we understand what we call here at the Bible Chapel the four pillars of giving. And I'm going to go through this quickly, but it's in your notes. I put it out in your notes, and there are passages there for you to look at. I just encourage you to take this, read through this, and, and, and prayerfully determine if this is what you're doing with your life. The four pillars are these. God owns everything. Everything is owned by God. He's the creator of all. He owns all. The Psalm here, 50, says, I own the cattle on the thousand hills. If I, if I get hungry, don't think I'm going to come and ask you to give me food. I can, I can take care of myself. It's all mine. So it follows then, doesn't it, just a logical sequence that if everything God owns, if everything is God's, then everything we have is what? It's something he's given us. It's a gift from him. And it follows logically, if God owns all things and everything we have is a gift from him, that all things we have are to be used by him, for him. And then back to number four, giving is an act of worship. It's an act of honoring God. And we come all the way back to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Now, the other part of this passage is verse 10. Honor God with your wealth, the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Just to be sure, that is not a teaching on prosperity theology. That is not saying, if you do this, then you got the biggest home on the block, you drive the nicest car, because you know that, and a lot of people teach that. That's not what that's saying. It's saying this. If you honor God, you're his child, right? Many of you are parents. You have children. Don't you want to take care of your children? Wouldn't you do anything to take care of your children? This this passage says, God, the loving Father, takes care of his children. He'll make sure you have everything you need to do what he's calling you to do. Proverbs 10.3 says this, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. That's a promise. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Proverbs, uh, Psalm 37, David says this, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. God will take care of you. Now that does not mean that you're gonna start a business and then sell it for $33.6 million, right? It does mean that if you honor God with your life, He's going to provide everything you need to do what he's calling you to do. God's provision and his calling always match. So giving is a heart issue. It's not about amounts. It's about attitude. And what I want to do is to take some time to look at three observations. We could, we, there would be many, but three observations regarding resources in the Proverbs. Here's the first one. Wealth can provide a false sense of security when we trust in it as the ends rather than the means. 
Nothing, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having money. We see in the Old Testament, some of the patriarchs were very wealthy individuals. In fact, in the Proverbs, we're going to talk about work and, and diligence, and a hard worker provides and saves. That's just an aspect of good stewardship. Proverbs 10, 15 and 16 says this, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. That, that, that means a rich man's wealth is his strong city. He has saved up. Uh, he, he, has, he has what? If he goes to a challenging time in life, he has that nest egg or rainy day money, whatever we want to term it. He has that set aside. So if he loses a job or goes to a devastating time, he can, he can rebuild. He can make it through that time. That's, that's, that's wise stewardship. So a, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And by the way, the other part of that is he can help others who are going through situations, right? Now here's what I love about the Proverbs. It takes something positive and then it puts that same phrase again and says, be careful with that. So we get to Proverbs 18, 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. We've already said that, right? But here's the problem if we start trusting in it. It's like a high wall in his what? Imagination. <laughs> he, just, he just thinks it's his strong city. If my security is in, is in money, it's not real security. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Sooner or later, if you trust in riches, you're going to fall. Trusting in money will never satisfy the heart. Uh, Solomon wrote later in Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never satisfies money. How much is enough money? Just a little bit more, right? Nor he who loves money with his income. Never satisfied. And certainly there's going to be a day, there's going to be a day when money will not mean one blooming thing. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. One of these days, we're going to stand before God and money's not going to matter at all. Hebrews, Hebrews 4, uh, 13, no cre creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, whom to, of him to whom we must give an account. I, I was reading a book on J.D. Rockefeller. Man, he, was a, he was a fascinating guy. He was a fascinating guy. And he gave money away like crazy. He, he started the University of Chicago. He did all these things. He had a lot of money. And uh, he was a capitalist for sure. He, he invested and started businesses and stuff. His son, after uh, Rockefeller died, his son took it over. And his son was so put off by all the making money, he just used all the money to give away. He was a, ph a philanthropist. But here's what the interesting part. Anyone know how much money J.D. Rockefeller left when he died. All of it. You're right. <laughs> Every bit of it. I don't know how many millions it was. But even J.D. Rockefeller didn't take any of it with him. He stood before God naked and exposed. And God sees the heart. Second observation. Running after money will run you into the ground. Going to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, but those who desire to fall rich 
to be, to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, the trusting in money, is the root of all kinds of evil, not just root of evil, it's the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And the, and the Proverbs echo that truth. The, the Proverbs uh, talk about people who become workaholics, neglecting other things in their life. Proverbs 23, 4, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. How many men and women, after it was too late, came to the point where they missed the, the years of their children growing up because they were chasing after the dollar? Oh, they rationalized it, right? Providing for my family. I want my family to take nice vacations. I want my family to live in a nice house. I want my family. I'm going to pay for my kids' education. I got to do all this stuff. They rationalize it, but they miss mentoring, raising their children. You can't, you can't teach your kids if you're not physically, emotionally, and spiritually present. How many men and women have built homes but neglected to build their marriages. By the way, money is the primary thing that breaks up a marriage. Research says money, communication, and sex are the three things that break up a marriage. In-laws are number four, but that's a whole other <laughs> issue. Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife but one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. A greedy man stirs up strife, stirs up strife in his heart, stirs up strife in his family, stirs up strife in his business, stirs up strife in those around him, but one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. When we chase after money, strife fills our hearts. Other people, it's not the workaholic thing, other people are always looking for a shortcut, right? They're always looking for that deal. Now, it's risky, and it's right on the line of being legal and not legal. It's kind of shady, but I'm going to go for it. But Proverbs says, don't do that. Proverbs 1.19, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Proverbs 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Proverbs 15.27, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, and he who hates a bribe will live. Proverbs 21.6, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. So workaholic, a little shady deal. And then how about the get-rich-quick scheme? The old Ponzi stuff. We love that, don't we? We still think, we still think that we can get rich quick with this internet scheme. Or I mean, how many of these schemes have gone on in our lifetime? Proverbs thirteen eleven: Wealth gained hastily will dwindle but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Just follow God's path. You work it. It's not get rich quick. See, a person who's always following a get rich quick theme, it's not the get rich quick theme. It's hard. Proverbs 28, 20, a faithful man will abound with blessing, but whoever hastens to be rich 
will not go unpunished. Third observation. God blesses generosity. It's kind of counterintuitive. When we give, God gives. Again, not prosperity theology. When we give, he takes care of us. I don't have time to read this, but jot down Proverbs 11, 24 through 26, a great passage that drives home that point. It talks about the person who is giving and who's generous, and as he waters others, he waters his own soul. The proverb describes, uh, this proverb describes a businessman who, who withholds grain in order to drive up the prices. And, and 11.26 says we never do that as believers. We don't, we don't play those games in business. The Proverbs remind us that giving generously to the poor is so important in our lives. Proverbs uh, 22, 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want. This doesn't fit anywhere in the sermon, but I think it's so important uh, to know regarding wealth. The Proverbs reminds us that uh, if you're wealthy... Uh, something else comes along. What do you have? You have a lot of friends, don't you? Wealth brings many new friends. Isn't that amazing? Many seek the favor of a generous man. Everyone is a friend of the person who gives gifts. And so that's just another reminder that if God's blessed us with wealth, and he has all of us to some extent, we need to be discerning with the motives of people around us, and we need to be discerning with how we use what God's given us. The stingy person throughout the Proverbs, the stingy person, the stingy person is always the fool in the Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30. I love this guy, a guy named Agur. Remember, it's Solomon who writes most of the Proverbs, but chapter 30 is written by this guy named Agar, we don't know a lot about him, but I love his perspective on money. He says, God, I don't want too much. I don't want too little. I want what? Just enough. Look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then here's what he says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is God? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I love that. Not many people pray that prayer, do they? We always pray, give me more, give me better, take my career up. Man, I don't care how many times I take my family around the country, I'm on the career path. Bagger says, man, don't, don't, don't tempt me with that. Don't give me too much, lest I forget you and say, who's God? I did this myself. Look at me. Or don't give me too little that I'm tempted to steal. Just give me what I need. As we get ready for communion, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is, this is a fascinating uh, part of the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter eight uh, and nine is 
uh, Paul, remember the church in Jerusalem was the mother church. It's where the church started and then it, it blossomed from there. And um, uh, in Jerusalem, they were going through some tough times. They were, um, they were, um, they were having a famine. Uh, some uh, historians say there was an earthquake uh, during this time. The Christians were, of course, being, being uh, persecuted. And so as Paul went around his missionary journeys, he was collecting uh, a fund for the, for the believers in Jerusalem. And he was asking different people. And he writes uh, 2 Corinthians because the Corinthians, when, when he started this fund, they were, they were, they were gung-ho, man. They said, yeah, we want to be a part of it. We're going to give a lot. We're a pretty wealthy area, Corinth was at that time. We're going to give a lot to, to the church in uh, Jerusalem. And for some reason, we don't know why, they stopped giving. They didn't complete the gift. And so Paul writes back to them. But in writing back to them, it's, this is an amazing point. It's an amazing point he makes in um, chapter 8 uh, of 2 Corinthians. So often we think that when we talk about money, right, again, it's about amounts. It's about the wealthy taking care of the poor. And there's a part of that in Scripture. But 2 Corinthians 8 puts this in a different perspective. It is a heart issue. Look at chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, Paul writes about the grace that God has given among the churches in Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was the area where the church uh, in Philippi and, and, and the Thessalonians and the Bereans. That's the Macedonian area. We want you to know about these churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, it's overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. They have nothing and they're generous. Go figure that for they gave out of their own means, as I can testify, and beyond the means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief to the saints. It, what, what seems like Paul, Paul knew that the churches of Macedonia were in such desperate straits, he didn't even ask them to give. I mean, you're as bad off as the church in Jerusalem. Why would we be asking you? Take care of yourself. Why would we be asking you to give to the church in Jerusalem? So we're not even going to ask the churches in Macedonia. But look again, begging us, they wouldn't have it. They were in extreme poverty, and they begged us for the favor, not the requirement, not the mandate, not that I, I got to give, but the favor of taking part in the reliefs to the saints. And then here's the key, and this not as we expected. We didn't expect that to happen. But they gave themselves first to who? To the Lord. It was a heart issue. They wanted to honor the Lord with what he had given them. First to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to ourselves. And then Paul brings this down to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, what? You might become rich. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, rich, became poor so that we who are spiritually bankrupt could become rich with all the spiritual blessings of God 
during this life and throughout eternity. That's the God we serve. As you take communion today, communion is for believers only first. If you're not a believer, just let it go by. No one's going to care. No one's going to be watching you. They're going to be dealing, we're going to be dealing with our own hearts. And I want you to just to focus on this verse. It's going to be on the screen. You can have it in your Bibles. Focus on this verse. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And think about two things. First of all, in communion, we do two things. We thank God for what he has done through Jesus. We thank Jesus for what he's done for us. And then secondly, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, we examine ourselves. So this is a time of examination. And today our topic is honoring God with the stuff he gives us. So be open and honest. As you hold the cup in your hand, it's kind of hard to pretend with God, right? How am I doing, God, with the stuff you've given me? Let me know so I can make those changes in my life. Father, be with us as we take communion now. Do your work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.